Good morning. The, good morning. The uh, passage this morning we're reading out of is in the book of Nehemiah. If you'd like to go ahead and turn to Nehemiah, or you can just listen along, that's completely fine. But we're going to be reading out of Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 10 through 19. Again, that's Nehemiah 6, verses 10 through 19. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God has not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, and the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son, Jehoanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, and his wife. And they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this, this has been quite a week. Um, how many of you have had a, a full week? Raise a hand if you've had a full week. Yeah, I can join you. Uh, uh, Pastor Brenton and Andy are not here today, and we thank Jennifer for stepping in and helping us by leading worship. Little Wells, their, their child, their first son, uh, has had a setback, and uh, so we spent a couple days up at... Uh, Nemours in Orlando, the children's hospital, and I would just ask that you continue to pray for Little Wells, and um, they'll go back this week after a biopsy and try to come up with a game plan, knowing exactly what they're dealing with and uh, what kind of treatment he might need. So they they are in need of prayer. They're very tired. Uh, you can imagine parents uh, of watching your little child laying there on a on a little gurney being taken into. Uh, a, a room for procedure and uh, the pain of that and, and seeing him go through this. But 
that's all I really I, I, I want to say. I, I, I'm sharing enough that I think each of you now know that you can help us by prayer. And that goes for every child. I, someone this week shared with me of a, of a woman who, whose child has been going through procedure after procedure, surgery after surgery, and to this point has still never held her child. Could you imagine that? So we, we do pray specifically for families and for children. And, uh, and wouldn't it be nice if, because you're a Christian family, nothing negative ever happens to you? But that wouldn't be... If that were the case, then God would be uh, breaking his own laws. Because the scripture says it rains upon the just and the unjust alike. The sun rises on the just and the unjust alike. And there are times where trial and trouble comes our way. And so when that happens, we need to pull together as a church family and pray for those who are struggling and suffering. We've had a lot of people who are dealing with cancer, dealing with other types of injuries, and uh, for us as a church to continue to lift them is so important. I'd like to pray right now before we enter into the Word. Father, I just pray that you would come near to those who are hurting. The, the Scripture clearly teaches that you come near to the brokenhearted. And there are those who are in that state, having lost a loved one recently. We, we know that the Scripture teaches us many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We, we trust you, Lord, with our lives. We believe that you are a sovereign God and nothing somehow catches you off guard. You made it very clear when Adam and Eve sinned that the world was in a state of fallenness, and that reaches every human being. There is sickness, there is sin, there is disease. Yet as Christians, we are able to walk with you closely. We know that many Christians have lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. You were right there with them. And we pray that you would be with these children that we've mentioned and others that are struggling. We pray that you would be with the adults that are hurting, the, everyone in our church, Father, that is struggling at this time. We ask for you to come near to them, that they would sense your presence, and that there would be a healing in their behalf. We pray it asking with faith, believing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well... Uh, I thought that I was going to have uh, Friday night and uh, or Thursday night and Friday to work on my message, which I had begun developing uh, on Monday. Um, and I thought, I'll, I'll work on it on Friday. Well, we found that we were back up at the hospital on Friday to help Andy and Brenton, which no complaint here. I, anything we can do to help our grands, that's important. Um, but I didn't get to study. And then I said, well, maybe I can squeeze it in on Saturday. Well, our daughter Lauren, who she and her husband Graham, they live in, outside of Chicago in Wheaton, they brought their five children to visit, and we had a good nine or ten days with them. They left early this morning, so Rini said, why don't we do Thanksgiving while they're here 
on Saturday. So there, there went another study day. So I stand before you today with no message. No, I'm, I, I do have a message. And I want to say this. Brother Marshall, was, he said, Pastor, if you find that with all this going on, you, you would like me to step in, I'm willing to do that. The scripture says this of those who teach. It says, be instant in season and out of season. And I just love the men on our elder board and those who have the gift of teaching who are willing at any second to step in. We are such a blessed church, are we not? But I do want to go back. I, just, I was planning, I told them on Monday at our, our Tuesday at our service planning team meeting, I said, okay, we're going into chapter 7. Here's what it's all about, and I'm excited. And I was. And then last night and early this morning, the Lord said, no, nah, let's just stay in chapter 6. Let's camp out there for a minute. So if you'll look at chapter 6, the text that, uh, that, uh, that Scott read to us, this is where we'll be for the next few minutes. Um, if you happen to read the newsletter and saw the little snippet about this weekend's sermon, uh, I ain't doing none of that. So <laughs> throw that on the scrap heap, okay? We'll hit that next week. But let's focus in here. As we open up the scriptures this morning, I want to quickly review what we've learned about doing God's work. And really, when we think about the book of Nehemiah, so many times I've heard it preached through the book of Nehemiah about the great leadership skills of Nehemiah, and we can learn great leadership principles and put them in practice. I, I wanted to, I, I asked the simple question, Father, is that truly the, the takeaway of this book? And what I sensed as I studied the text was that's not really the focus. That is a side focus. There are some wonderful principles on leadership that we can take and implement in our lives. But the primary purpose of Nehemiah is to see that we serve an extraordinary God. And that he can take, he's so extraordinary, that he can take ordinary men and women and use them to fulfill his extraordinary projects. That God never does a project on his own. He chooses not. Could he? Of course. But God chooses to use us. He uses us, fallen, imperfect human beings, to do his perfect will. And, and that's who Nehemiah is. He's a cupbearer to the king. And, and he has this deep burden in his heart that God placed there. And he gets from King Artaxerxes permission to go back to his homeland, to Judah, and go back and repair the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And the king of Persia, who's not a believer in God, he actually says, and I, and I want you to use from my personal forest, take the wood that you need to rebuild the gates. I, and, and on top of that, let me send with you some of my army on horses to give you safe passage all the way back to Jerusalem and also to influence those in the region to see that this is a work that I approve of. 
So there's no question, there should not be a question in any of our minds that this entire book about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the restoration of, of, of Israel after the, the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, listen, there should be no question, this is all God's doing. This book is not about man and what man can do with business principles. It's primarily about what God can do through anybody. And God does, here's how we can do extraordinary things. Not because we're extraordinary, but because God gifts us extraordinarily. The gifting that you have from the Holy Spirit is an extraordinary gift. It really is. The problem is we use it in the world. We use it for our personal uh, 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 income uh, to, to do whatever we do. You know, we, God's given us the ability to do it. If you're a brain surgeon... Uh, you can say, no, I, I earned that. Um, I went to school. I, you know, I spent all these years learning. And, and I would not disagree with that. I, I'm a layperson when it comes to that stuff. But here's what I do know, biblically, I do know that you have a mind that has the capacity to do it. And not very many people can do what you do if you're a brain surgeon. Who do you think gave you that mind? God created you. God's the one who, who gave you what you have. And so God takes ordinary people and gives them extraordinary gifts, and they're able to do extraordinary things for him. What was it they did? They built the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. And I'm talking all the way around the city. Okay? So that, that's where we're at here. And, to, and just a quick review, okay? Chapter 4, Nehemiah had to stand up to the violent threats of the enemy on the outside of the project. So the, it was the enemy outside the walls that were coming and, and trying to put fear and even threaten to fight against them as they were trying to do the Lord's work. And then in chapter 5, he had to deal with an internal conflict inside the walls among the Jewish people that were working on the wall. He had some wealthy folks, and he had some that were not wealthy. And as people fell into a famine, they couldn't even afford to put food on the table, so they would, they would lease their land and others would take possession of their land. But they, they were having to pay interest, and it was unbearable interest. And it was causing a great faction inside the walls of the city, and Nehemiah addressed that. So there was enemy on the outside. There were things that came up on the inside that caused conflict, and, and the wall had to stop long enough for them to work out their differences and come back into agreement. But really, the way that they worked it out on the inside was he just took them back to the Word of God and said, wait a minute, you know this. In Deuteronomy, it says the Jew should never charge interest to another Jew. What are you doing? And in the end, all the nobles and the city officials that were charging and overcharging, they, they said, we'll give all the land back, and we'll, 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 we won't charge any interest. We'll, we'll release the debts. And all the people came back together, and they finished the wall in 52 days. Pretty cool. Well... Here in chapter 6, the walls are almost finished. The breaches of the wall have been repaired. Only work left to do is to rebuild the doors and the gates, and that's what they're working on. But just because you're coming near to the end of a project doesn't mean, especially when it's God's project, it doesn't mean that there won't be opposition. Don't think Satan just kind of gives in and gives up because you're almost finished with the work that you're doing for God. Um, he goes into overdrive. He sets the crosshairs on your chest, and he comes after you, and that's what he does to Nehemiah. We said last week that there were four uh, schemes that Satan used 
to attack Nehemiah and the Jews, okay? The, the first one was inquiry, and that was verse 1 through 4. We're not going to cover that except to say that Satan made a reasonable-sounding appeal to Nehemiah, but the end goal was to not help Nehemiah. It was to kill him. He said, come, let's sit together and talk about unity. Uh, let's talk about what we have in common, not what separates us. That, that, that's fine when the disagreement is over silly little things, but when it's over significant things that stand in, the op, in opposition to the truth of God's word, that's not a little deal. You, you don't want to be mutually in unity with somebody who doesn't. Uh, it's, it's like this. Um, if the Unitarian Universalist Church reached out and said, hey, we'd love to do a project together with you guys, I would lovingly, carefully, humbly, respectfully decline. Because they do not believe Jesus is the Son of God. They come off as a church, but they're not a church, not, not according to the, the, the Scripture. Now, if it's a disaster relief, we had a hurricane and we need to have people come out and pass out jugs of water, I'll stand shoulder to shoulder with the pastor of that Unitarian Universalist Church. In a crisis event, yes, we'll work together. But when we have a choice, Scripture calls us to work with other believers who have what's most important in common, and that is Jesus Christ. And, and I think that here what's happening is they're saying, please, come, we want to have a meeting with you, and let's talk about these things. And Nehemiah, the way he responded was, uh, excuse me, I'm too busy doing the Lord's work to go over and have a meeting with you to talk about unity. When ultimately, you don't want unity, you want to destroy me. You want to destroy me. Many pastors and Christian leaders get lured into Satan's trap of compromising sound doctrine for the cause of unity. You ever heard someone say, uh, the Bible doesn't say that the world will know us by our correct doctrine. The Bible says they'll know us by our love. Let's love each other. We need to set aside the matters that divide and let's come together on the matters that we agree. Uh, many pastors have been led astray from the truth of God's word and from the gospel, the true gospel, because they gave in to that. Listen, friend, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, if we live it, if we communicate it, it will divide people. There will be people who will be offended by it. You're saying to me that the gospel can only happen if I place my faith in Jesus Christ? He's the only way to heaven? Yes, and let me just restate. I'm not saying it. I'm quoting what Jesus said. Jesus said it. You just, for many, that's a turnoff. And they run and they go another direction. While others who are being drawn by the Holy Spirit are drawn to that. See, our place is not to try and win people. Let me say this very carefully. You cannot talk someone into salvation. You should never use coercion. You should never try to somehow get somebody to a point where they emotionally respond to the gospel. For years, there were men who would hold big revivals, and they would use these types of tactics. One of them was a guy who would get up, and he would tell the story at the close of the service. He'd say, this, 
this boy was dying, had a, a, a fatal disease, and his father took him in his arms. And the little boy looked up at his daddy as he was about to take his last breath, and he said, Daddy, will I see you in heaven? And that father crumbled and gave his heart to the Lord. How about you? Are you going to be separated from your children and your family forever because you... That, stop that nonsense. None of that is the gospel. The gospel is that everybody in this room is a sinner. And God came calling. <laughs> and he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. He paid the price we could never pay. Therefore, he is the only way that we can be pardoned of our sin and receive salvation. So if God's calling you, surrender. <laughs> That's the gospel. Repent of your sin. Surrender to God. Let God save you. And by the way, only God can save, not man. We've got to get away from that. The Apostle Paul, by the way, strongly opposed the Judaizers because they were adding to the gospel. Paul knew the gospel. You just read Romans and you'll know that Paul knows the gospel. Read Galatians and you'll understand Paul gets it. And Paul was really upset with the Judaizers. These were men who claimed to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They believed that he was the Jewish Messiah. They believed that. You'd say, well, then what else matters? Well, Paul opposed them. Why? Because they said that in addition to believing in Jesus, you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. You, if you're a Gentile and you say you believe in Jesus, well then now let's finish the work of salvation by you being circumcised. They're adding to the faith. It's not by faith, it's by faith and works. Well, that's not true. Galatians 1, 8 and 9 tells us that. He said that if you add any human work in order to be justified, you are severed from Christ. This is, these are the words of Paul to the Judaizers. If you add any work, you're severed from Christ. Can't do that. Satan's aim is to destroy you through subtle deception and reasonable sounding these appeals that he makes like to Nehemiah. The enemies of Nehemiah would essentially say to us today, are you against mutual agreement? What's wrong with you? Um, it's not about mutual agreement. It's about faithfulness to God's word. And if you don't think that's important, I'm sorry, but we've got an issue. It is important. Amen? So, so that's the first thing. And then we learn accusation, verse 5 through 9. We see how the enemy sent a message to Nehemiah four different times. And it was an open letter message from the enemy outside the camp. He sends it where everybody can see the letter openly and they can read it. And in it, in this letter, he's accusing Nehemiah of things that Nehemiah didn't do. And what was Nehemiah's response? Just keep doing the right things. Keep, stay busy with God's work. Here, we've, we've asked Nehemiah to meet with us four times. This man, I'm telling you, he's, a, he's just strong-willed. He's got a mind of his own. He doesn't want to work with others. Uh, Nehemiah was doing the right thing. 
It's amazing how many Christians, when they hear that, they go, oh, yeah, what's wrong with Nehemiah? He should, he should be going, what's wrong with meeting with them? Well, when you know that they're of the enemy trying to destroy you and the work of God, then you take a different approach, and that's what Nehemiah did. Thirdly, now we get to something we didn't cover last week, and that is the threat. Verse 10 through 14, Scott read it. See, Satan will use religious people to scare us into wrong behavior, which could potentially ruin our reputation. This is what happens. So they're saying, hey, the enemy's going to sneak in. They're going to take you. They, they want to wipe you out. They want to assassinate you. So the best thing to do, and, and by the way, the one speaking to Nehemiah about this is a prophet of God. But the thing is, the prophet is paid by the enemy on the outside. So this isn't a true prophet. This is somebody who's wicked in their heart. And there was even a prophetess that's spoken of here. And there were several other prophets that were saying the same thing. And all of them were not representing God. They were representing man on the outside. And they said, look, if you don't go and sleep in the temple, you need to go to the temple and sleep in the temple. That's the safest place for you because they, they won't enter the temple. And Nehemiah's like, okay, two things wrong with that picture. Number one, if I sleep in, if I go to the temple, I'm hiding. What is that saying to my people? That I'm afraid of the enemy? I'm sorry, I'm not afraid of the enemy. My God is greater than the enemy. Church, listen, you can stand on God. You don't have to run and hide. You don't have to change the rules and 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 come up short on righteousness just because the enemy has threatened you. You hold the line. You stay true to God. It's like a couple that I counseled and they were living together and I said, hey, get married. You're telling, you're, you're, you're both saved? Yes. Um, did you know it's a sin? And he was kind of alarmed by it. He didn't really give it much thought. And when I said it to him, he's like, Wow. I said, yeah, how can God bless your home when you're living together? He can't do that. And secondly, if you're truly saved, you're going to have a desire to want to obey God. See, that's what it looks like when the Holy Spirit who saves us, who transforms us, that's what it looks like. He comes in and now he convicts you of sin in your life. So when you're saved, even though before you were saved, you were okay sleeping around or sleeping with somebody and living with them, now all of a sudden... You're like, hmm, I just learned the truth that, that if I'm living with you, we're not married, that that's sin. I don't want to live in sin. I just gave my heart to God. I, I'm now a child of God. I want to come back into relationship with God. And so what do you do? You, you get married. You don't struggle with it anymore. But when you, when you are not saved and you're thinking you're saved but you're not, the, the, the clear indicator is you'll go right on living the way you always live, living in sin, because you're not bothered by it, because the Holy Spirit's not convicting you of that. He's not in you. So you got to really understand that. And I said to this guy, I said, yeah, you guys need to get married. And he said, well, I asked him, I said, so why aren't you guys married? And he gave me this, this excuse. He said, well... Uh, her, her daughters, not mine, but her daughters, they're all teenagers. One's getting ready to head off to college. And uh, if she files individually, she'll get more uh, financial aid. It, it'll be better. And I sat back in my chair and I said, so let me see if I understand. 
you're, you're, you're not going to get married because you don't think God can handle the financial matter of a child going to college. Is that what you're telling me? He looked at her, he looked at me, and he said, when can we get married? I'm not making that up. Immediately on the spot, when can we get married? I said, get married right away. I said, I can do it today if you want. He goes, well, we want to have a couple witnesses. We need to do that. So how about next weekend? I said, great, under one condition. You move out today. He didn't even hesitate. He said, you got it, I'm out. Once he knew the truth, he did not want to sin any longer. And there is no excuse for a Christian going soft on sin ever. And, and, and so here's Nehemiah. He's like, I don't want people to think I'm fearful and I'm running from this threat. And then secondly, I can't sleep in the temple. The Bible clearly says I can't do that. So I'm not going to go in the, enter the temple. So Nehemiah stood his ground and he went ahead and continued working on the wall with the people. And this is how he handled the last threat when they said, come and meet with me. I can't do that. I'm doing the work of the Lord. Why would I stop the work of the Lord to go do, deal with the work of man? I'm not going to do it. That's how you handle. That's how you remain faithful to God. That's how you fulfill God's purpose in your life. Whatever God's called you to do or whatever he's called you to be, listen, remain true to that. And when the enemy comes along and tries to tempt you or even people that are good people, friends of yours, but they're trying to pull you away from this commitment you've made to God, listen, you got to be honest with them. Hey, look, I love you, and we can have time together, but I can't, I'm not going to give this up. This is who I am. This is what the Lord's called me to. And, and they have to come to a point to respect that. That's just who you are. And so Nehemiah chapter 6, look at verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. See, Nehemiah firmed up, didn't he? He said, I'm going to do it God's way. Number four, last point. Infiltration infiltration. Verse 15 through 19. This is brought on because of the victory of rebuilding the wall. In all the other three cases, they were trying to build the wall, and the enemy was trying to stop them from building the wall. In this case, it's they have completed the wall, and you'd think after the job's done, now Satan will really give up. You know, okay, you lost. You lost the battle. Do you not see? And it's like after the enemy shows up again. Now he wants to infiltrate. And that's what happens here. They finish the wall, Satan's scheme, infiltrate, and Nehemiah's persistent resistance gained the victory for the Lord. I want you to see this. When the enemies and surrounding nations saw that the wall was complete, they lost confidence. Before it was complete, we can take him. We can, we can, we can stop the Jews at any time. Once the wall was complete, they lost confidence. This is the Lord's doing, by the way. They had to admit that this work had been accomplished because of God. See, that's, that's what happened. The fear of the Lord came upon them. All this time while they were trying to build it, this is just man trying to build it. Good grief, if I put a fox on top of the stones that they're, they're stacking up, the, he could knock the stones off. It, it, it's just a work of man. But now all of a sudden, it's done in 52 days, and they know this is a God-sized project. God did this. And now they're like, uh, who are we compared to their God? See, that's what happens when we stay true to God and we go forward in whatever 
endeavor we're taking on that God's called us to. See, and by the way, it's not you coming up with some idea, I want to do this for God. No, no. It's you praying, Father, how can I join you in your great work on this earth? And, and so God says, okay, here's how you can join me. So now you stay faithful to it. And even after you have the victory of fulfilling, don't think Satan's going to rest. He's going to infiltrate. And that's what he does. All the enemies that Sambalat had drawn into the plot against the Jews only widened the circle of God's glory when the wall was finished. But even though they had now they saw that God was in it, that didn't stop them. The enemies still wanted to attack. And so we read the last part of this chapter and it explains very much. Look at verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. Tobiah was the enemy. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in, the, in Judah were bound by oath to him. They're related to him in some way, either by contract or by relatives that were living in the city. So the whole time that this stuff was going on, and even now, you have the enemy who has people inside the camp saying the things he wants them to say. The enemy's not in the camp, but his minions are. Have you ever taken on something for God and you're in the middle of it and there are those inside the church that try to keep you from going forward or they bring up, oh, well, he, that guy that you think, no, he's a good guy. He's I work with him outside in the business world. He's a good man. But you know that he has tried to take you out on the inside. That's, that's what they're facing. This should be a model for us. We should work as hard as we possibly can and, and, and know that if we do what God's called us to do, he will bring it to pass if it's his work. But don't think that Satan won't continue to try and infiltrate and try to take us out even after the project was completed and they had victory in the walls being rebuilt, Satan lost the battle, but he didn't give up. He infiltrated their ranks to try and divide the people from inside. you got to continue to walk with the Lord. Now, what, Lord, what's next? How am I to walk? I'll, you say, well, I don't know what God's calling me to do. Let me tell you what God's calling me to do. Because it's not as, you know, the will of God, we, we always, oh, Lord, should I marry this girl or not? I'm waiting for the Lord to tell me whether I should marry her. Um, you're not understanding the will of God. Lord, should I take this job or not? You're not understanding the will of God. The will of God is that you obey this. This is the will of God for you. The word of God is the will of God for you. When it says do it, the will of God is that you do it. When it says don't do this, that's the will of God for you. Don't do it. Who you marry, what job you take, you do understand God can give you success in several different types of businesses. It's not like that one business, that one job is the only thing in the whole earth that God could, could use to work with you and bless you. It's not true. See, God's like this. He's like, should I marry this girl or not? He's like, um, are you going to live the will of God if you marry her? Because if you'll live the will of God as you marry her, guess what? You'll have an incredible marriage. Should I take this job? Should I move to this state? I don't know. 
Are you going to keep this? This is the key. Does that help at all? And so now you commit to this. I'm going to live the will of God. Guess what? Now Satan says, okay, we'll see about that. And boy, he comes knocking, doesn't he? He comes knocking. And he's trying to do what? Get you not to fulfill by faith with obedience the will of God. So you come through a project. God's will was done. Wonderful. Your marriage, you've married this woman. You've married this man. And boy, God is helping you guys make it through life. It's not easy. Marriage is work, but it's the Lord's work. If you see it that way, it helps. And, and so now you're like, okay, good, 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 good. Then the enemy comes. Bam! Attacks. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you do. You do the will of the Lord. I'm going to remain faithful to my spouse. I'm not going to take the temptation that Satan is presenting me to try to disrupt the relationship, the intimacy that I have with my, with my spouse. You do your best to be faithful. Sometimes things are out of your hands. I understand that. But you live the will of God no matter what happens in your life. Don't give an inch to Satan. By the way, he's a defeated foe. Stop trying to fight the devil so much. I am not saying there's not spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 makes that very clear. He is an enemy, and he is attacking, and we can fight against. But oftentimes in the New Testament, he says, uh, you want to you, you resist the devil? He says, flee from him. Just walk away. Usually when Satan attacks, it's because we've opened a little bit of a door somewhere. And we're leaving that door open for fear. And just walk away. Read the word. Live the word. Walk away. He's defeated. He can't do anything about it. Amen? Let me give you some takeaways as we close this down. First one, do not expect perfection in Christian work. <laughs> as you serve the Lord, don't expect perfection. We can expect God to accomplish significant advances for his kingdom through our labors, even as Nehemiah did by rebuilding the wall. But until Jesus comes back, there are no happily ever afters. About the time there's a happily, it seems like there's a happily ever after. Okay, January, we're in our new building. Praise God. Hallelujah. Woo! Man, things are good at VBF. You don't think Satan is going to notice that? You don't think he's going to attack again and find ways to try to get in and dismantle a body that is loving God and trying to live out the will of God? He'll be right on it. I mean, I'm telling you, he's as close as white on rice. He is all over it. We cannot rest. Even after the wall was built, the enemy infiltrated the ranks and stirred up further trouble. You'll never see a perfect church in this fallen world and if we expect such we will quit in frustration trust god listen trust god to use you to advance his cause but don't fall into the trap of perfectionism secondly another takeaway we must never put confidence in our work but only in the god who enables us to work see that'll keep you humble at the end of a good day you come home you're you're tired you're weary but boy 
God moved. You had some good things happen. You don't walk in the door and, and, and your spouse says, hey, how, how was your day? And you say, man, I got a lot done today for the Lord. Man, it was awesome. No, no, you come in and say, the Lord was good today. And the Lord allowed me to have a front row seat to what he was doing. See the difference? The humility that's involved in that? So it's God's work always, never your work. You're working with him. It's his work. Thirdly, when, when God's people compromise with the world, it always results in hindering God's work. Now, what I'm not saying is God can't get that work done. God will always get his work done, whether it's through you or without you, okay? But what I am saying is when we allow the world to compromise, bring us compromise, it does hinder what God had for us to do. Okay, so Tobiah and his son had intermarried with some of the Jewish nobles, and they had convinced them that, 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 that Tobiah was a good guy. And here they are in the church trying to tell everybody, oh, he's really not a bad guy, he's a good guy. He wanted to kill Nehemiah. Don't ever let your guard down. Stay true, stay faithful. Trust those who love God. Don't trust those who put on a front. Three, three kinds of people in the world, and this is all found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about the work of the Holy Spirit and how he's able to bring us to understand things that we could never understand in our own natural ability. He even says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it been put in the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. People think that means heaven. That's not about heaven. He's talking about the work of the Spirit, that when eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it been put in the heart of man what God has, has revealed, okay, to who? to those who the Spirit lives in. He will give you insight to understand, okay? Three types of people, okay? First, the natural man. And when I say man, I mean woman as well. The natural man. Paul talks about two types of natural people. First is the ungodly. They, they, they don't even try to act like they're good people. If you mention heaven, are, are, you, are you going to heaven when you die? What the blankety-blank? You think I care about heaven? I'm going to hell. and I'm going to be king of the devils. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, un ungodly. The second type of, listen, the second type of natural man, religious. They look like a Christian. They talk like a Christian. They sing Christian songs. They go to Christian church. They serve on Christian boards but they're natural. They're not saved. They're a natural man. They've learned to fake it really well. Now, get this. There's not an ounce of difference in eternity between an ungodly man and a, nat and a religious man. They both are the reason why the gate is wide that leads to death because there's a lot of them. And then you've got another type of man, the spiritual man, the one who God has saved and the Holy Spirit indwells. The first type of spiritual man is a babe in Christ, a little baby, brand new in the Lord, a neophyte, just growing, but not knowing a whole lot. Needs to suckle on milk. That's okay. That's what a baby does, right? That's a good thing. The second type of spiritual man that's young is a brat 
You've got babies and you've got brats. Brats are the ones who want it their way. They have not learned to submit to the work of the Spirit. Okay? They're, they're as Paul called them, carnal. Paul did say when he addressed the carnal, he said, brothers, some of you are carnal. Some of you are still... So it's possible in your early days to be a... You don't grow... A baby, when you give milk, they grow up. They no longer need milk. They go to solid food. But a brat always wants milk. Can you imagine a 30-year-old Christian walking around with a bottle in their mouth? That's what Paul's talking about. You got to grow up. And then what's the next group? Young spiritual men and women and mothers and fathers, spiritual moms and dads. When you go from being a babe to somebody who's growing in the word, you become a young spiritual man or a young spiritual woman. You desire to grow. God begins to use you in your gifting for others' sake. It's a beautiful picture, okay? And the end result is you become a spiritual mother or father. By the way, the healthy churches are churches that have lots of spiritual moms and dads who come alongside young spiritual men and women. They bring them along. This whole idea of this, this generational church, well, we're just about young people. We're going to have young people at our church. That is the biggest mistake you can make. It's sinful. You need all ages in the church. Amen? And by the way, all ages have to put up with something that really doesn't fit them. Young people have to put up with things older people like, and older people have to put up with things young people like. That's the way God designed his church. Amen? And that's the church that we desire to be. Hallelujah. Father, thank you today for your word. Thank you so much for how you help us, you teach us, you grow us. May we now be faithful to you. May we walk with you. And today as we leave, may we leave with joy in our hearts, knowing that the word of God is in us and that through obedience we can experience great blessing. In Jesus' name. Before you leave, Veterans Day, was that Friday or Saturday? Friday. Saturday. Saturday. Was it Saturday? Okay. You understand what Veterans Day is about? It's about anybody who has served in the armed forces, defending our nation, protecting our freedoms. And I would like for just a moment, those of you who have served, to please stand. Please. Go ahead, please stand. We thank you for your service to your country and to us. We are indebted to you. Rini and I were sitting uh, Saturday morning, honey? Yeah, uh, it's been a blur this week, but we were sitting in a local restaurant and uh, Rini noticed that the couple sitting behind me, uh, he had on a veteran's hat. And so we called the waitress or said, please give us their bill. And she goes, they just paid. We were like, no. I, I, and I don't think it ought to be something we just do once a year. 
try to find somebody this week. Thank them for their service. Thank them. Because oftentimes they're forgotten. And what they did was put their life on the line for you. Big deal. Let's, uh, let's live our lives as if it's a big deal. Let's love people. Amen? God bless you, church. Have a great day.